This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. With Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. Rob Brown here with the news for this week on the Accounting Influencers Podcast. This is where Martin Bissett and myself co-host, we take a look at the news and most importantly give you insights as accounting practitioners so you don't really have to look at the news. You don't have to sign up for things and keep monitoring on the media, but we're keeping you up to date with what is happening, what you need to know to build your commercial awareness and business acumen so that you can serve your clients properly, grow your accounting firms. And we are moving to a new format with this show over the next week or so in turning what is a one show with six daily episodes into five separate podcasts. And this new section is going to be called Insights in Accounting. So look out for that in your podcasting apps or whatever platforms that you use. But let's crack on with the news and what's caught my eye this week. I'm flying solo is a piece on the accountant online. This is part of the International Accounting Bulletin under Arena International and Global Data. Uh, This article is not accredited and I will put the link in the show notes for you. It's entitled Commerce and Industry Accountant Hiring at Record Levels. Some really fascinating insights here on what is quite a short piece. I'm going to talk you through it. So by all means, sign up for this. It would be a paid subscription, but it's super valuable information. They produce some great things. But we will put the link in the show notes, and I'm going to summarize things for you here. So we've talked a lot about employer brand, attracting talent, growing your accounting firm, increasing the capability you need to hit your growth targets, and maintain relevant and competitive in today's complex market. This piece focuses on some research by Morgan McKinley and data analysts, VacancySoft. Uh, It's done in England and Wales. I have no reason to think this would be any less relevant for, say, North America, Australia, New Zealand, or many other countries where we have listeners of the podcast. And it says recruitment for accountants across commerce and industry has continued growing after a record 2021. Hiring levels for commerce and industry finished with growth of 68% year on year and an uplift of 22% in relation to pre-pandemic levels. So there is a drive to take on people with accounting qualifications, accounting expertise. We mentioned before the drift from the accounting profession in practice into industry, into commerce, into fintech, into other sectors. And accounting practices are losing talent. There are many reasons for this. Your employer brand, your employee value proposition might be weak. Says here in the article, technology and telecoms firms overtook retailers as the busiest hirers of accounting talent, publishing a combined 4,000 new jobs in 2021, representing a rise of 102% year on year. Now, 4,000 might not sound very much. There are actually more accountants, I believe, in the state of New York than there are in the whole of the United Kingdom. But that notwithstanding, scale this up for your country or scale it down. 4,000 new jobs is a massive uplift, 102% in fact. And uh, Morgan McKinley state that the commerce industry remains in high demand for attracting talent with candidates having multiple offers across a wide span of industry. So when you think accounting candidates, these are people with accounting qualifications and they have a huge range of choice into where they take their qualification, where they take their skills, their energy, their dynamism, their ideas. And the war for talent is not just within the accounting profession in practice, but it's in industry as well. 
So candidates with any kind of qualification, expertise in accounting, have a, a range of options at their disposal, whether they go into industry, whether they go into private practice, whether they go into fintech, whatever it is. Candidates, it says, are looking for finance leaders, CFOs, who have created accounting departments, finance departments, to be more strategic and innovative. And they are drawn to companies where finance teams are not just spending their time on manual, tedious processes. Does that sound familiar? We talked about the banal jobs that some accountants in practice are told to do when they join a firm, you know, lower level down the food chain. Let's chain you to a desk. Let's give you some really boring, repetitive tasks. That's not going to keep your talent very long. So let me read that again. Candidates are looking for finance leaders, employers, CFOs, read managing partners, senior partners, accounting firms who have created accounting departments to be more strategic and innovative and drawn to companies where finance teams, departments are not just spending their time on manual, tedious processes, particularly since there are now many platforms that eliminate the need to perform routine, monthly, repetitive tasks. It concludes this little bit by saying there's been a real shift in working habits, but this is not news to you, a real shift in working habits, technology adoption, and employee expectations. And it has to be a priority for CFOs and accounting firms, I'm, I'm adding there, to work hard to engage their workforce. This is not new to you if you're a regular listener of the show. I talk a lot about employee and it's a really area of interest for me. I've always been fascinated by what attracts accountants to some firms rather than others and what makes accounting clients, business owners, choose one firm, one accountant over another. The article concludes, it's never been more important to offer support and career progression within the commerce landscape could be very similar in the uh, practitioner landscape. 15% of the finance population have moved within the last 12 months with candidates seeking a change within 2.5 years. That's the average now. Wow. So that's the same in accounting. People are coming out of accounting, coming into industry, the great resignation, recalibrating lives, looking at what life is all about with an accounting qualification. It's coming back the other way as well. I'm sure there are some accountants in industry and commerce coming back into practice or trying practice. The article says it's never been so important to invest in people and technology to keep the job interesting as there are plenty of other options available. This is so true. The war for talent is not just with your accounting rival down the road, but it's in industry as well. Finally, it says attrition is as high as 31% in some larger organizations as employees focus more on their job satisfaction and not just pay. Candidates are taking advantage of the rapidly loosening UK labor market, probably the same in other countries, and this will continue well into 2022. So what is the message for you as accountants in practice? You have a whole load of choice. People want you. If you're good, if you're staying up to date, if you're tuning into this podcast, getting professional development, upskilling yourself, you have options, many options. It is a, an employee-driven, a candidate-driven market right now. Whether you want to go into industry and commerce, remain or move into practice, you should have the pick of the bunch. So be discerning. If you're an accounting firm desperate for new talent, maybe talent is leaking. You've got attrition problems and you want to take on more people. You've got to get your employer brand right. Make sure you check out our series on employer branding uh, in accounting. You've got to get your proposition right so that you're attracting the right people, keeping the right people. You're losing them to industry and commerce as well as losing them to other accounting firms. But there are opportunities here. In a candidate market, you've got to stand out as a, an employer of choice. 
giving people autonomy, flexibility, control, power, interesting projects, interesting work, interesting teams to work with, interesting clients, variety, looking after their well-being, looking after their mental health, taking care of them, giving them great benefits that goes beyond a competitive salary. You can compete with industry and commerce and it makes you better. Competition makes you better. You don't want to be complacent. You don't want to be the only gig in town where people have to come to you because that's not going to create motivated employees. So, so many opportunities, so many challenges. <sighs> Take a breath. It's a war out there, but it's a good war and it should be keeping you sharper and giving you options for how you set up your firm and set up your accounting career. That is the news for today. Check out the new show, Insights in Accounting. You'll have to subscribe to it and in next week's season opener we will be giving you a preview on what will be coming up in that new show take care and go be brilliant improve your practice while decreasing how hard you work to make your firm really fly really the fly. accounting influencers podcast with rob brown and martin Bissett. Welcome to this week's expert interview, and I'm filled with to have with me today an accounting legend. It's Joe Woodard. Joe, good day to you. It's always great to be here, Rob. Are you a legend? Are you admitting to that? You've been in this game a long time, Joe. Well, we have a saying here in the U.S. that uh, somebody can be a legend in their own mind. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm a legend there. I don't know. Yes. But I, but I do definitely have. I've established a bit of a reach here, and there are some folks that listen to me about how to run their practices. So I'm honored by that. There is indeed. There's a comedian over here that says. I'm really disappointed with the way legend has been devalued from pulling a sword out of a stone to unexpectedly bringing back potato chips. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so that's, legend is, that's, that's brilliant. Legend is probably a bit obvious, but yes, you have been in the game a long time. For people that haven't come across you, Joe, just give us a, a 60 second buy on a flavor of how you got to here. Yeah, so I am a coach and trainer to accounting firms, uh, largely known here in the United States. And I... Uh, coach firms of all sizes, uh, but I specialize in the CAS department or the bookkeeping department um, of the firms, or some practices are just bookkeeping practices, um, but we do uh, coach into the whole of how the firms operate, um, even though we specialize in the, the, the CAS department. Got it. And what kind of shape do you feel the accounting profession or industry is in right now? Yeah, okay. Yeah, and of course, that's uh, globally, that could be answered different ways. So I'm going to kind of speak from from the position of the United States. And then you can tell me, Rob, what's how that's being echoed in the UK. But um, in the United States right now, uh, the state of the profession is strong in the sense that we are embracing technology. We are, uh, through COVID, our, our adoption of the cloud has been accelerated, um, but we are being disrupted. And the disruptions that we are facing are severe. Um, and they're coming from multiple fronts. One of the biggest waves of disruption right now is our staffing crisis. You can tell me if you're experiencing something similar. Um, this, was, this was accelerated by COVID, but not created by COVID. Um, in, in the United States, we have a population bubble called the boomers, and the boomers have moved their way through the generations. And every single time they hit a generation, they change things. They change everything from the economics to the culture. Well, this is happening now as the boomers are retiring. So we have a massive retire off facing the profession, coupled with the fact that the college students who are graduating are largely not choosing accountancy. They see it as boring and irrelevant and, and, and drudgery work. And so we have a brand problem because true accountancy is not, it, it has those elements. It can be very routine and, and it does have a historical 
you know, component, but the more that we can become interpretive and analytical, the more we can become uh, transformative. And I think we'll start to get that younger generation back. So we have a, a massive staffing crisis coupled with scaled competitors that are global, right? Uh, KPMG is getting into the small bookkeeping space. Um, QuickBooks is a bookkeeping company now. Uh, we've got H&R Block, a major tax gig economy uh, worker here in the United States that that scaled tax preparation and has been competing against the tax pre uh, preparers here for years. It's now embraced bookkeeping with 7,000 bookkeepers. They're deploying in brick and mortar locations. And then uh, most recently, a Bezos-funded uh, organization, Pilot, uh, which I'm sure you're familiar, um, is, is going to try to scale and change the face of bookkeeping. So when you get those kinds of things, you get massive commoditization. And then uh, a third leg of it is the technology piece, where we are leveraging those technologies now. That's great. If uh, Hopefully, everybody listening to this podcast is leveraging those technologies. But just ask the, the travel agencies how this wave works. You embrace the technologies until finally the technologies become commercialized and they become commo uh, commodities and then utilities. And then all of a sudden, uh, everybody's just using them from their desk. So at what point the technologies we're leveraging now will become those that are used for to, to fully automate record keeping processes and tax processes with just a little push over the edge? Don't know. As artificial intelligence increases, the risk becomes more and more severe. So you have technology, you have staffing. And you have scaled competitors that are all converging on the rank and file bookkeeping firms right now and tax practices. Accountants generally don't cope well with change. The profession's been ever thus. Double entry bookkeeping has been ever thus for many, many years. So what do you see? And, and by the way, that's happening in the UK and other parts of the world as well when we talk to people. So no surprises there. What do you see as the accountants, the bookkeepers' attitude to change and disruption, Joe? How are they coping as a breed? Surprisingly, that's beginning to shift. Or not surprisingly. Surprisingly, it took so long for it to shift. But um, you know, no, accountants don't like change. But increasingly, I'm seeing that accountants are um, identifying the same problems. Just like you said, there's no surprise there. If I went to an accounting show and said, these are your three major disruptive impacts, it would be, I'd get nods. They all know. And, and nothing focuses the mind quite as much as a threat from behind. So if they can, if they can just now have a, a pathway, I think the motivation is there. I think the desire is there. I think the embrace of the change is there. And I think it's all about coaching and guiding at this point. So if I were to ask you what separates the good accounting firms from the great, you would likely say their ability to deal with disruption and build a thriving practice amidst all these drivers. Would it be something like that? Yes. D disruption proofing your practice. Absolutely. But underneath the umbrella of disruption proofing is sort of the question how, right? And, and, and so a thriving practice, what separates the practice that's disruption proof from the one that's not is a, a full embrace of the cloud in the way you operate as a practice. It, there's a prevailing mythology out there, Rob, I'm sure you've seen it too, that I go, my firm adopts zero, or my firm adopts QuickBooks Online, and therefore my firm is cloud. No, because <laughs> cloud is about the holistic way that your firm operates, everything from the way it manages documents, to the way it collaborates with clients, to the way it manages its systems and hardware. Um, in other words, all the way down to the point where even the computer sitting under or on someone's desk is a cloud-managed computer from an outsider inside IT consultant. So that the, the standard is, if you can take a professional in your practice and you can place them anywhere in the world 
and they will be just as effective as if they were sitting at their primary desk location, then I would say you've probably met the cloud standard. <laughs> when I mean just as effective, I don't mean because they prepared in advance to take just what they needed on a flash drive or just what they needed in a suitcase because it's paper or it's imprisoned into a local drive. I'm saying that without doing anything other than grabbing that laptop and going, they are just as effective on the road as they are at their desk. When that standard is met, then you are prepared in the cloud component to be disruption proof. But there's another one. That's just the work environment that's modernized. Now you have to be automated. We're finding that firms that are disruption proof can automate up to 80% of the manual processes of tax and bookkeeping. And when you do that, now you can start competing, not by driving your price down, but by insulating your gross profit margins in an extremely increasingly price sensitive world. But then you couple that with a price commoditization neutralizer, that's effectiveness. If you will take what you've automated, you will take the increased gross profit margins you're getting from that to stabilize your profit, invest that profit back into developing advisory. Now you can drive prices up from where you are. You can go run counter to commoditization while your bread and butter staple bookkeeping and tax uh, are operating at a higher profit margin than your competitors. Mm. We'll get you back on another episode to talk about data in the cloud, Joe. I know you're very passionate about that and have a lot of uh, content about that. But for now, what have some accounting firms bookkeepers got wrong over the last couple of years? Um, I, th I believe we got wrong the fact that if you just embrace a cloud GL, I'm cloud. So that's number one. But number two, I believe that we have missed the mark on this word advisory, and we've missed it from several different angles, all the way down to its core definition. If you ask feet on the street, um, what, what is advisory? Depending on who you're asking, you're going to get several different definitions even more flavors of definitions. And if you ask 10 CPAs, you'll get 12 different answers as well, Joe. Well, yeah, exactly. I like that. 10 CPAs, 12 answers, because, because it's nebulous. Um, so we have a joke here that, that advisory, we call it the A word, um, because it's not, it's, it's not that it's a bad, it's a bad direction for, for practices to go. It's a bad word because we've not taken care of the word. We haven't nurtured the word. We haven't clearly defined the word. And even worse, Rob, um, and, I, and this is the indictment on thought leadership and the coaches and the trainers out there, of which I'm a part, we haven't, we've told all these accounting firms for the last decade or more what they need to do and why they need to do it and when they need to do it, which is yesterday. <laughs> but very few of us are telling these accounting firms how to do it. Right. So we're part of the problem. Now, by the way, I, I actually built a school of advisory because I got tired of being disingenuous there. So I've got a 300 <laughs> hour school of advisory. Um, but 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 we don't even call it advisory because it's such a loaded word. We call it a school or business coaching because as soon as we put the A word on it, then it means 12 different things, like you said, to 10 different people. Well, even trusted advisor, Joe, you go to that phrase. Accountants don't know exactly what that is and what they have to do to be a trusted advisor, but everyone's telling them to step up and own that space. Exactly. But see, that's even a worse term because, <laughs> because I don't even like it, like it even less. Because when you throw the word trusted in front of it, I tell you, every accountant hears differently than what you mean. Okay. What they hear is trustworthy accountant. And because I am a trusted or trustworthy accountant, therefore I, and I advise my clients, 
I am a trusted advisor. Well, that just means that I'm not going to share their information around or that I'm going to be diligent and competent in the advice that I provide. And since yeah, I'm, I'm ethical, I'm compliant. I'm going to check the box. I'm going to go to that conference. I'm going to go, Rob tells me I should be a trusted advisor. I'm trusted. I'm an advisor. <laughs> check. Right. And 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 it and so what I, I just got back from the, the BDO Alliance in Las Vegas. And those are some of the 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 most cutting edge firms in the the sort of regional firm space. These are not small operations. They have 30, sometimes even over 100 professionals in these firms, but they're not T100 firms for the most part, top 100 size firms. So they, they sit in this spot where they, they're, they have tremendous amount of resources. They have the same challenges as the top 100, but they're slightly more nimble and they're still uh, to a large degree founder led, many of them. So I'm speaking with the leadership, that's who comes to the BDO Alliance about these very problems. And what some of these firms are doing, Rob, with advisory is inspirational. They, they're, they're and transformational, which I think is really the key. If you say that you're a trusted advisor and the impact of your advisory services is not to some degree transformative, if it doesn't result in positive change for the client, then I would argue you're telling the client the wrong advice or you have the wrong client. Those are really only options, right? And these firms are having a transformative impact. It's it's encouraging. Transformative is such a great word, but it scares a lot of accountants who are dealing with risk and trying to be conservative and keep an eye on the numbers. But I get that this ways accountants and bookkeepers have fallen short, but in other ways, they're stepping up. Is there an area of accounting you think hasn't evolved as quickly as it should have done, hasn't jumped on the wagon, they haven't got it yet? Or would that be advisory again? The, yeah, that's the answer to this question. This is the one area. But I would also say that firms, uh, coupling with that, one of the reasons that firms uh, who have tried to, to embrace advisory, but maybe haven't had that transformative impact um, is because they're not specializing like they need to specialize. Um, and, and with bookkeeping and with tax and with attestation, we've gotten used to being able to take on any industry that comes our way because we're all, always dealing with the commonalities of business with a few nuances in reporting. And we can adapt to that. But when you start getting into business coaching, you have to understand how that business operates better than the person who owns that business, which I don't know how it is in the UK, but in my country, that's not a very big leap. The, the business owners do not get into business because they're masters at how to run a business. They get into business because they're really masters at their trade. You know, take a dentist. A dentist doesn't know how to run a dental company. They just know how to work on teeth. <laughs> so it's the e-myth stuff, right? And so since we have the e-myth thing, it's, it, you can leap over the skill set on how a dentist needs to run their business or a veterinarian or an acupuncturist or a construction company very quickly. And then you can start to guide and protect their journey. But it's only when you've narrowed the pool of companies that you serve. Now, if you're a much larger firm, you can have specialists in your firm, multiple people where each person specializes on an industry that's great. In the smaller firms, you don't have that luxury. You're going to have to pick an industry and you're going to have to learn it. You're going to have to be able to master its operations and then create a formula that you can take from client to client to client, which will also further your brand. That's the other thing I would say is we failed at establishing brand as an industry, um, individual brands, as well as the brand of the overall profession, all has to be nurtured better than what we're doing. I'm sensing an impasse actually too, Joe, with, are we asking entrepreneurial business owners in coaching them and offering them business coaching services to think more like accountants and understand the numbers and get behind the data? 
are we asking accountants to be more like entrepreneurs and business owners in their thinking so they can better advise and understand the mind of the business owner? It's got to be the latter, Rob, because you'll never, I don't think, typically, you're not going to get the typical business owner to think like an accountant. We've got to bring the accountancy. We've got to translate the principles of accountancy to them, right? And that's why it's critical that we play that role. I believe most small business owners are operating from a severe visibility crisis. I would say some of some of them are even driving blind. And I think this doesn't take your listeners by surprise. They, they know their cash position by their bank balance. They know their net income 12 times a year, two weeks after the fact, because it's the only thing they look at in the financial reports that we send them. And they don't understand or look at any of the other. And this is a, another big mistake we make with advisors. We look at the entire chessboard and we're able to see 12 months ahead because we're masters at chess, chess here being accountancy. But then we make the mistake of thinking, well, let's turn these folks into accomplished chess players. No, they're playing their own game, trying to get a house built, trying to get a car fixed. That's their chess. We need to play the game of chess on their behalf. We need to take about 10 data points, five to 10, sit down with them once a month. And it's not even the same 10 necessarily. It depends on, on what's going on in that month. But we cherry pick the five to 10. We sit down with them once a month and we tell them not what the numbers mean, unless that's a means to an end. But what's the implication of the numbers for what they should do? actionable management advice. Because this change from here to here, you need to do this. Five, maybe at most 10, um, and it will radically impact the way that they're driving their business. And it will create much needed visibility. And can I come all the way back around to the disruption pieces? That's the very thing that the software is not giving them. Therefore, it insulates you from technology disruption. It is what the scaled competitors are not doing. Therefore, it insulates you from the scaled competitor disruption. And when it comes to the staffing, that kind of knowledge work allows you to generate revenue disproportionately to effort, neutralizing some of that impact as well. We can kill all the birds with a single stone if we will just sit down with the client and do the five to 10 key metrics. And I like that, not overwhelming them. We're, there's so much data now going on in, in the accounting firm, the businesses they serve. Joe, I want to ask you, you've got a foot squarely in the bookkeeper space. And you're very qualified to answer the question. Are we seeing a blaring of the lines between bookkeepers and accountants and CPAs? I even heard of a story recently where a business had hired a zero certified practitioner that wasn't qualified in accounting at all. They had no professional qualifications, but they had certification in the software. So bookkeepers, accountants, tell us a little bit about those lines. Well, they're blurring, they're blurring within the CPA firms here as well. Part of that's driven by the staffing crisis. People are hiring whoever they can get their hands on, right? But it's a good, that's a good outcome because the professional designations are important. People who have earned their certified public accountant, as we call her in the US, or the chartered accountant. They've sweated blood for those, haven't they? Yeah. And also the enrolled agents. We, that's a designation that's unique to the United States, but it's um it's it's a designation granted by our Internal Revenue Service for tax preparation and representation. These are hard fault designations in the profession, and we should honor them. However, there are people who know how to do the work without the credentials, and they can do that under the um, the guidance, the leadership of the people in the firm that have the credentials. I don't see why those people aren't just as qualified for the roles. Obviously, they can't sign returns or maybe they can't sign the attestation reports, but they can definitely do the work as proficiently as those who have those kinds of designations. So, um, you know, in the legal industry, there's this whole para community, right? Um, in the medical industry, there's this whole nursing community, 
comparisons break down a little bit there because the nurses have to be licensed and credentialed. But my point is, if we operate a little more like a hospital where we have various degrees of nurses before you get to doctors, then various degrees of doctors, we'll be a lot um, more capable and holistic in the way that we service our patients. And I'm using my air quotes here where we've thought of it very lin- in a very linear way, that the doctor does all the work, all the work of the nurses, and all the work of the surgeons, and everything in between. And I don't mean to say in any way to disparage the, the, the bookkeepers or the non-credential tax preparers. I'm not talking about a caste system. I'm talking about a degree of skill set system, because and, and a degree of licensing. There's in the nurse practitioner space, those nurses that have the a similar authority to the doctor. I have found that that I would rather be serviced in almost every case other than surgery by a nurse practitioner than by a doctor. These are extremely brilliant people. They just have never gotten the MD after there. They've also got a better bedside manner. They can often communicate a lot better, can't they? So yeah, and and also their writing skills are a little better too. The uh, the point is, oh, we need we need to be looking at the profession more like a like a hospital than like a um, like an MD doing all the work. That's a great analogy. And I was we did an interview with Louise Wilson of Moneypenny, who were, were at the BDO Alliance. You may have met them there. And uh, they do frontline uh, first experience calls and live chat for accounting firms. And she said, we don't need qualified accountants to take inbound calls. We need somebody with a good bedside manner, a lot of empathy to get to the heart of the problem and, and triage that if you like like a nurse would do and then direct them to the right person so who needs a qualified cpa for that right exactly and that's where the that's when the doctor is needed you call the stat so if we can do this rob it means that the cpas it's sort of the totem pole or the caste system that's that's been prevalent within the professions that gets torn down in a and maybe some nurses would tell you that that the doctor still there's still a caste system in hospitals, and that's where the, met- the metaphor breaks down. But the really good hospitals, I would suspect, are the ones where the MDs fully respect the skill sets of the nurses, and they work in concert, they work in synergy, right? And if we could do the same thing with the with the accounting firms, then this blend of the credentialed and non-credentialed creates a powerhouse of skills. So let's bring this plane home to quote a phrase, Joe. We started talking about the disruptive the disruption-proof practice. And you gave us three great metrics, if you like, for what are the driving forces. Brand and the boomer black hole and the the unattractive profession for the young ones coming in. You mentioned scaled players, really important, and then the tech that's going on there. So let's just wrap that up and turn that into practical advice for the accountants, the CPAs, and the leaders listening. What do they need to do to build a disruption-free practice? First, we talked about the advisory layer and the modernization layer, but at the end of the day, it's got to be effective. It's got to be the, the entire measurement of success has to go from how accurately did I record the past to how effectively I am interpreting the present with an implication for the future. If we can do that, we will change not just the impact we have on our clients. We will change the brand of accountancy for the next generation coming in and for the whole of our business and personal clients. More analysis, more interpretation. But I've got one more for you, Rob, and that is culture. The perception of accountancy, maybe even the reality, 
is that we are, you know, stodgy, stiff collared, emotionless, you know, just just anything that would say, as a matter of fact, we're the brunt of all the jokes for that very reason. And it's not just that we, I'm not just saying that we have to, you know, put the foosball tables or the ping pong tables. That's a little bit arbitrary. What I'm saying is build a culture that transcends the genre. And that's done, yes, with a little fun. Yes, you want to have the company retreat. Yes, you want to add a little jocularity to your life. You want to hire people that add a little energy to the firm and can represent the firm with that kind of energy. But but it's deeper than that. I would encourage your listeners to read a book called The Advantage by Patrick Lencioni. In that book, he details out how to establish culture through a declaration of company values, not from a PR or thin or surface application, but internally, how to use those values to nurture the kind of human-to-human interactions within the company, human-to-human interactions between your company and your clients. It's game-changing. So ultimately, you're saying you get the culture right, you get the advisory piece right, you'll start attracting more people into the profession, you'll maybe hold on to people a little longer, you'll create competitive advantage against skill players, you'll buy necessity digitally transform because you've got to be in the cloud to deliver effective advisory. That's it, isn't it, Joe, in a nutshell? That's it in a nutshell. It's so simple. Why isn't everyone doing it? <laughs> well, it's simple, but it's difficult. And I'm so glad you mentioned that word simple. It's simple to climb Mount Everest. doesn't make it easy. You just keep going up. <laughs> so, but yes, it's an extremely difficult climb. And I'll tell you the, the, the that thought leadership and the people that have the coaching and education companies like I have, got to do more to create practical pathways uh, to, to, to not just tell people how, but to coach them through the process of change. And um, if we'll start doing more of that, Rob, then the firms will follow. Well, I'm going to ask you just finally in a moment, Joe, to uh, share with us what you feel are the two or three top skills and attributes that accountants, bookkeepers are going to need to succeed in the coming years. But before I do that, there's some great stuff you do for bookkeepers and accountants. We'll put your contact details in the show notes, but what kind of things do you help them with? Well, we do have that 300-hour uh, business coaching school, um, and it covers six different different disciplines of coaching. You don't have to do all six. If you just do one, you can get through it in about six months, uh, three, three to six months. But, um, but if you want to do all the disciplines, uh, it's a three-year run. You start coaching as you're going. It's not like three years, then you start. Okay. Um, we also have a practice uh, advancement program that is uh, similar in scope and nature over a period of three years. You go through this and you make the changes as you go through them. These are coached programs. They're not educational programs. So you have uh, a mentor or if you choose it, even a one-on-one practice coach to guide you through the journey. Um, here in the United States, we have uh, one of the premier and largest accounting technology shows that we host called Scaling New Heights. Um, and it is the only show in the United States that draws uh, almost every single general ledger player under a single roof, um, the global general ledger players, Zero, Accounting Suite, Acumatica, Microsoft Business Central, um, and, and, and more, Sage Intact are all under a single roof. And then we have, I guess, my favorite thing to talk about, if people can check it out for free at water.com, we produce a reality TV show that is cable television quality called Tech Makeover. It's filmed in the reality TV format, but it's in a video case study. And it documents the transformation of a small business technologically by a small business advisor. Uh, it's got a production value of $125,000 per hour. So it's serious. And the list, everybody listening to this can go watch it for free. 
Gerald, that's terrific. And uh, just to finish then, top skills and attributes accountants, CPAs, bookkeepers are going to need over the next few years to compete and serve their clients optimally. What would you say? Yes, they're going to need to become coaches. Coaches is their primary profession. Record keeping and compliance is a means to an end as the fuel for that fire. Um, And if they will do that, Rob, then they will not only survive in the coming years, their, their practices will thrive in the coming years. Joe Woodard, that's been world class. Thanks so much for your time and your passion today. It is always great to be here, Rob. It's Thursday. If you're listening on the day this show comes out, this is the Accounting Influence Podcast with our regular episode on Here's What Works for Accounting Practitioners. We look at the practical aspects of running a firm, being in a firm, being in an account, being an accountant in the practice and generally raising the bar when it comes to your career and the people that work with you. We've been doing a series, well, I've been doing a series on a topic very close to my heart, employer brand. I wrote a book a few years ago called Build Your Reputation. It is published with Wiley. You can find it on Amazon. I did a TED Talk in a similar vein called The Personal Brand of You, which you can find on YouTube. It's had quite a few listens. And I'm fascinated why some people get chosen, get hired, and some don't. I'm also fascinated by the other way around, why some firms, some employers get chosen and some don't. And it comes down to this. It's your employer brand. We weren't talking about it much a few years ago, but in this great resignation, the war for talent, the labor shortage, the drift or drain of accounting professionals away from practice into industry, into commerce. In our early episode this week in the news, we looked at the increasing hiring going on in commerce and industry and retail and fintech and everything else. And there's a war on. So your employer brand is a valuable tool. The faster you start building it as an accounting practice, the better, because it's a great way to increase awareness of what you're doing, attract top talent, and you build a reputation as being a sought after favorable place to work somewhere where people want to get involved. They want to be brand ambassadors for what you're doing. So I'm wrapping up this series with some final thoughts and tips on employer brand. We know that technology, regulation, increased complexity of work, the greater needs of business clients, loads of other disruptors have forced accounting firms to be more agile with change. And firms that are growing, probably like yours, that want to bring in new business, unless you act fast with talent and have a strong employer brand that attracts the right kind of people, you're going to struggle to fulfill your promises to your clients and you're going to lack the capacity to do the work required. So whatever you're promising on your website, whatever values it says, and we've done a separate episode, you can check on it. I'll put it in the show notes on the employer brand website. You've got to live it out. Candidates want proof and examples of how what you promise to employees plays out on a day-to-day basis. And this is attracting talent from new hires to senior partners. It's not just people coming into the game. It's attracting senior talent from other firms. Sometimes we call that lateral hires because people have done a lot of thinking about life over the pandemic. Lifestyle changes have been adopted by choice or sometimes forced upon them. People have got used to not commuting or got used to working from home. So Are you as a firm doing what you can to be at the front of people's thoughts? If recruitment is holding your firm back from growing at the rate you want to grow, then it's a strategic challenge to get your employer brand right and devote time, resources to it. So I'm going to overview 10 areas, 10, sorry, eight areas. I can count. I am a former high school maths teacher. Eight strategies for better employer branding. And if you can get some of these right, then you've got a chance in this game. And one of the things you can do, I'll just mention it briefly. It's not a sales pitch, but with all of the interviews that we do here at Accounting Influencers, we do have a service whereby we interview your staff 
your clients sometimes to talk about a, what a great firm of advisors you are, but your staff to tell the stories about why it's great working with you. And we give you these videos to boost your employer brand website, to put out on social media, to keep talent going internally. <clears throat> Pardon me. And we can create these videos for you. We can't do it for loads because I'm the one that usually does the videos and we have limited bandwidth, but we do like to work with firms that are progressive and want to create uh, videos with real people telling real stories about real life experiences working for your firm. So let's go through these eight here and see what comes up in no particular order. Audit your current employer brand. So where does it start right now? How good are you at attracting top talent currently? Where are the gaps? What's working for you? What isn't? That's one thing you've got to be thinking about. Then improve your recruitment process. If you're making people submit resumes and CVs through the post, print it off. If you're making them come in, to your office to an interview and you're not doing interviews online, if you're putting through all kinds of testing and everything else. We've got some episodes coming up that says that psychometric testing and resumes and curriculum vitae are not the best indicator of talent and whether people will fit for your role. So you've got to convince people to take a step towards you and your recruitment process is the way that starts, isn't it? So how do you advertise your vacancies? How do you, you encourage people to take a step towards you and show any level of interest. What are the next steps like? And what is your interview process like? Next one is to reward your people properly. We've done a specific episode about that. People don't want to be rewarded in the way that you think. And providing you're paying competitive salaries, it's not just about what you're paying them. It's the benefits that are very personal to them. It's important to reward your people properly, personally, appropriately, because what motivates some employees might not motivate others. Next is to prioritize employee well-being. That was our episode last week or the week before, losing count a little bit. Yes, it was last week, episode 124. Mental health is at a premium and people want to know how you're going to care for them. You don't have to hold their hands specifically, but we're in complex, challenging times and everybody's contending with something. We hear now of employee well-being first aiders, mental health first aiders that look after people at firm, put an arm around them, give them the right signposting, coaching, counseling, mentoring, whatever it is they need to do their job you're asking them to do. There might be challenges with remote working. There might be challenges with bringing them back to the workplace. And we've been socially isolated for a couple of years. People might struggle with that. And you've got to look out for that and show that the duty of care you have for your employees is taken seriously. Next one is developing your existing talent. So it's no good being good at attracting new talent if your best talent is leaking out of the back door to your competition or to industry. So we've done an episode on that as well. That was episode 119. And here's what works. Uh, developing your existing talent to showcase your employer brand. No good promising great things. You've got to make sure you're rewarding, looking after your existing talent, developing them, training them, nurturing them, coaching them, upskilling them equipping them with new knowledge they need for the new post-pandemic world, whatever that looks like, because best practice has changed and what worked last year will not necessarily work this year. Next tip for you is building employer advocacy. So this is getting people to talk about you, getting people to showcase your brand on personal media, social media, talking about what it is to work with you and engaging in your corporate post, your social media posts, sharing those because the network of your people is bigger than the network of your firm, your practice. So getting them to be advocates of what you're doing, that helps them recruit their network into your firm. And there are ways to do that. Next, we did an episode on this as well. I will give you the exact one. This is building an employer website, employer brand website. There it is, episode 89, what works 
in accounting with employer brand websites. So many good things coming out on that. I'm doing some work with a big recruitment company that are big on retention in doing critiques for accounting firm websites. So where we take a look at your website and give you the lowdown on how that comes over for a talent out there coming to your firm, looking for a place to land, looking for a story to buy into. And how do you advertise your vacancies and how you do you distinguish your corporate brand from your employer brand? Because talent's not interested in, in your website logo and your value specifically, because most accounting firms sound and look the same. They're not interested in your sector expertise and all the qualifications that you've got. They're interested in what day-to-day -day life is like working for your firm. And you can showcase that on an employer brand website if you do it right, but a lot of firms do it wrong. An employer brand is hidden in some about us stuff or work for us amidst all your vacancies, which just show that you're inept in attracting the right kind of talent. Uh, last one is tracking metrics and let your L&D people, your HR people, your senior partners, your team builders know what is working and what isn't, what the uptake is, what your conversion rates are from inquiries into interviews, into bringing people on for the job, into keeping them for any length of time. Lots to think about. Let's wrap this up. Recruitment's never been easy, but arguably it's more difficult today for accounting firms than ever before. Attracting, retaining the right talent can be made easier if you have a strong employer brand. I've shared with you lots of tips over the last few weeks. And it's important not to fall into the trap of listening too much to the latest fad, the latest trend, losing sight of what employees actually want. So use your recruitment process to find this out, structure your whole recruitment pipeline into what kind of employees you want and what gives them the best possible chance to thrive in your firm. And ditch, please ditch the old model of a career for life because it's changed. The game has changed. Some young accountants want to come in, do 5, 10, 15 years with you and move on. So work with them on that basis. I used to be a teacher. They sold that as a career for life. Come in, do 40 years, grab a pension. But it's not a career for life. People want change. People want options. So you're going to make it easy for them to look elsewhere if you don't give them what they're looking for. Candidates are becoming pickier and choosier with the firms they want to work with. And whether it comes down to the money on offer, your work environment, your culture, your technology, your location, younger entrants to the workforce, uh, and even those senior people coming from other firms looking for a change, they're declining work because it doesn't align with their values. You're not getting a handle on diversity, inclusion, the environment, corporate social responsibility, ESG, environmental and social governance. If you're not big on those things, if you're not contributing to the environment, to society, to the community, it's a time when firms are gonna have no choice but to walk the walk and walk the talk with your brand, your culture, your promises, your working environment. And COVID necessitated all of this. It demands from you unprecedented levels of agility and looking after your people, looking after their mental health, their career opportunities. The battleground is in talent. And to win, you accounting firm leaders have to take immediate steps to understand the diverse traits, capabilities, motivations of your workforces, because only by showing deep insight and caring and love and attention for what makes people tick, only that is going to help you attract the talent you need for the next phase of growth. There's a lot to think about. The war is on and the spoils will go to the best firms with the best cultures, the best employer brands, the best videos out there with their employees telling real stories about what it's really like to work for your firm. And we can help you with that. But for now, make sure you walk your talk, back up your promises with real life culture, real life examples, and you will win the war for talent. You're listening to the Accounting Influencers Podcast. 
cutting through the crap to bring you the very best interviews, insights and wisdom from the planet's most influential people in the accounting and fintech world with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. Welcome to the show and I'm thrilled to have with me today once more the wonderful legend that is Lee Fredrickson. Good day, sir. It's a pleasure to be here, Rob. Lee, always great to have you on our show. You are a friend of the show and you bring different insights each time. And today we're going to do a deep dive into some research that Hinge have done recently on employer branding. So why don't we just uh, kick off for the benefit of people that haven't come across you and Hinge before. Just give us a little bit on your background and your areas of expertise. Okay. Well, I'm personally, I'm a behavioral psychologist by training. Uh, but Hinge is a branding and marketing firm that uh, specializes in the professional services. So that's what we do. And our really distinction is that we're research driven. So we do regular research on the professional services and what makes some firms grow faster and be more profitable and more successful than others. Mm. Why employer branding, Lee? Why did that stand out as a topic that warranted research? Great, great question. Uh, you know, if you look at what does it take to build a professional services firm, there's really three things you need. You know, one is you need to get the clients, obviously. No clients, no business, no firm. Hmm. The second thing is you need to have the people, and that's where employer branding comes in. And, of course, the third component is you need to have your processes and, and so forth that you use, and those are very important as well. And if, if you lack any one of those, you're going to be suboptimal in terms of what you can do as a firm. Mm. And uh, with the uh, shortages that there have been in a number of professional services industry with recruiting, that is a ongoing and uh, really a, a pacing concern for a lot of firms. It's so true. A lot of the firms I talk to in my role is the Business Development Academy. We train accountants to win business. And you ask them, what is the biggest challenge they have in growing their firm and they say we we can't get enough of the right people mm -hmm. we've we've got the opportunities there but we can't get enough of the right people to service them so just to summarize what are some of the most striking results from the study that you've done well i think one of the things goes directly to what you were saying you know if you look across industries uh accounting is one of the very lowest in terms of the number of people who are actively looking for new positions new engagements. Why would that so, be? Uh, well, I think it may be uh, a related to what the employment situation is. All of the people that have, have been actively looking have found positions. So there's very a very thin margin of people who are actively looking. And where you really need to focus your effort if you're going to be successful in those that are more passive job seekers, those that aren't actively looking, but they would be interested in talking to someone if there was an offer that would be appropriate or if there was a good offer available. Hmm. So those are really the focus in these uh, industries that are extremely competitive and accounting really kind of tops the list. Yeah. Now, on the other end, if you were looking for uh, marketing people or uh, so forth, they're plentiful. A lot of people actively looking within the professional services looking for different marketing positions. And you split your questions into two perspectives, didn't you? You looked at the talent evaluators and the job seekers. Do you just want to make that distinction for us here? Yeah, exactly. So uh, we looked at over a thousand people and about half of them were job seekers. Those were people who were employed and were either actively, passively looking, or we even talked to some people who were not interested in moving at all. I'm right. happy where I am, not gonna move. Uh, and then on the flip side, we looked at those who were involved in the hiring process, both mm. the direct 
uh, people who were responsible for hiring, as well as those that did interviewers or interviewing and, and contributing to the overall decisions. They're on the selection teams, as it were. And what we found is that there are many things which there's close agreement, they see it the same way, but there are also some things where there are some striking differences. And so it's, uh, it, it's very interesting to see where they see things the same and where there are opportunities that your colleagues might be missing. Yeah. So what exactly are job hunters looking for in professional services? Uh, it does vary by where they are in their career. So okay. for example, in the early part of the career, people are looking for a lot of different experiences. They want to try out new things. As a matter of fact, that, uh, that breadth of experience and that ability to try out new things is as important and in many cases more important than salary. Right. Just that experience. However, once you start to get to mid-career, you go like, oh my gosh, flip it around. <laughs> I, want, you know, I want to be able to focus. I don't want to be pulled in too many different directions. <laughs> you learned your lesson. Yeah, you start <laughs> to say no to stuff, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to be able to say no. I don't want to be, uh, I want to be able to have some kind of focus. Yeah. And I want to have a culture, a, a company culture that is supportive of me and so forth. Uh, and then by the time you get to be a senior people, are a senior professional, you're more concerned about who am I actually working with and are people going to listen to me and am I going to have the ability to change things, to actually have an impact on this organization. Yeah. So you can kind of see the profile of what people are looking for sort of morph as they gain experience. Yeah, and I don't know if this will come out later in our conversation, but this is generationally led, isn't it? We talk about millennials and Gen X and Gen Z. When you look at professional services, they are run by people that are over 50, predominantly male, and it's been ever thus, hasn't it? They're not adaptable to change so much, although COVID's hitting them there. But yeah. we do have this this wave, this hailstorm of people coming up that do want a voice. They do want some influence. They do yes. want the capacity to change things and maybe have been frustrated by how the firm's culture has been going so far. And, and you're saying they value that more than how much they're being paid. Exactly, exactly. Uh, the other thing that really uh, came out that was quite surprising in, in previous studies, we found out that the ability to work remotely is important. Right. And it really comes out in this study, obviously, because we collected data just as the COVID was hitting. And there was a big difference in those firms that already had the ability to work remotely or that adapted quickly, they did much, much better in terms of the impact on their employees. And it's not like it's a no fault, no harm kind of thing because we actually found that those firms that did not adapt well to the COVID situation, that were not flexible, that didn't react quickly, they actually had more people who were actively looking it's basically, I want out of here. This place isn't adapting. They're not adjusting. Uh, I need more flexibility. Yeah. And it was interesting, too, that the ability to work from home was even actually most pronounced in the senior professionals, which we wow. didn't expect. We yeah. expected it would be more lower level that uh, they would be. But the senior professionals were really the ones who said, I want to work at home. Now, whether that's driven by additional health concerns or, you know, they're, uh, you know as one get older, you get more moderate about those things uh, you know we don't really know that in detail why maybe that commute just wears on them after doing yeah, exactly. that for 20, years. Good. Yeah. Yes, yes. well yes. it's interesting what you're saying I, I wrote this book build your reputation uh, which mm -hmm. is on amazon and 
the the essence of this book a is darn a fine book on my dad. Thank you, Lee. Appreciate that. I, I'll pay you later. But it's a career playbook, and I asked the question in there: Why should somebody uh, hire you or promote you? And what you need is career capital. In other words, you need that reputation, you need that voice, that influence, that network uh, of champions. You need something to bring to the party. And once you get career capital, you can trade it for for autonomy, for flexibility, for remote working, for a three day week for a better mm-hmm. package, for more interesting mm-hmm. work, for better work colleagues. And you start to have a say in things when you have this career capital and a great reputation. So we're talking about employer branding, but there's this employee branding side of it as well, isn't it? And making yourself more promotable and hireable. It, it, it is, Rob. It is all, you know, it's all part of the same thing. And, you know, the, to that same point that you raise, uh, when we looked at it, we said, you know, what is most important? in having an employer brand. You know, what, what makes for a good employer brand? What are the yeah. elements of a really successful employer brand? And interestingly, both on both sides of it, they come up with the same thing. And that is the corporate culture. What is your culture as an organization? The same thing you use to attract clients is what you use to attract employees. That's mm. your core of who you are as a corporation. What your, what your, uh, your environment is like to work in and what your environment is like to be a client with. Yeah. Culture is such a strange word too, isn't it? Because some firms think it's, it's the brand values we put on our website or it's what we say we do, but you don't really know a culture until you get wrapped up in it. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that's one of the, you just hit on one of my pet peeves. I (laughs) I don't, I don't often go off on many things. You go off on one, Lee. You have full license to run. I'm going to rip into this one. uh, (laughs) The notion of that, you know, the values we put on it. I know people put a lot of work and a lot of thought into those, but when you end up with a list of six or seven or eight values, how in the world do you expect anybody to follow that? Even if they want to, I mean, the research on human behavior shows, you know, you can keep three objectives in your head and maybe four if you're super concentrated. Mm. Like, that's about it. But eight or ten values, forget it. You might just as well write gibberish there. Because and, even if someone's trying to, they can't do it. <laughs> yeah, and how often do the partners of the firm know what those five or six values are? They might know two or three of them, let alone live them out. Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. So let's talk about the different stages. Candidates early in the career, we've established are looking for different things later in the career. Do you want mm-hmm. to just expand on little, a little on, on what the priorities and deciding factors are for candidates at different stages in the career? Yeah, the, it, it really is interesting. And, and I think uh, one of the ways of thinking about it is your priority tends to be what you don't have. Okay. So when you look at what people who are actively looking at almost any part of their of their career, the thing they're looking for is usually a better culture, better okay. cultural fit, something where they will uh, get the uh, responsibility they need or the autonomy. So they're looking for a better culture. And wages are secondary. When you move to those people who are not as actively looking, where they're more satisfied with the culture they have, actually they assume they're going to move to a place that has a, a good culture because they're not going to move unless they get a reasonable culture. That's interesting. And for them, the thing that actually moves them is the dollars. Right. So you, you end up with a different priority depending on where you are, you know, where you are, not only in your career, but where you are in terms of your dissatisfaction level with the 
place you're working at. Yeah, that's very good. And presumably then that has implications for the, the people in the firms recruiting these people at different stages in their career. It does. And it also has implications for turnover. What we find out that turnover in a position is not uniform. You mean churn, but employee churn. churn. Yeah, yeah, people yeah. leaving, uh, leaving yeah, turnover and job. Not because when you say that to an accountant, turnover. they have not, a different no, meaning of not turnover. Not the British turnover. We're yeah, talking yeah. about the other <laughs> Got it. Yeah, the bad kind. Uh, and what we find there is that uh, there's a peak of that around uh, two to three years after employment. So when you've been there a couple years, it sort of sinks in for you that uh, this is not the place for me or I've got what I can get out of this place. Mm. So that's a prime time for uh, people leaving. Other prime times are when you mess up something with the culture. Uh, the, uh, the response to COVID, for example, as we alluded to earlier, a big increase. All of a sudden people said, you know, this place isn't for me. And so they're now whether they're able to find a position or not, that's a different thing, but they have already loosened that bond that kept them where they are. Yeah, that's a really good point. And in your research, you look at the different stages as entry level and mid-career and, and that leadership senior professional. But are you finding on the whole that loyalty is going down? People are more open to moving. They are less wedded to a firm. Do you remember those jobs for life that we used to have? You sign up forever. Yes. But these days, there's a lot of fluidity, isn't there? Yeah, there, there is. And I, I would think that uh, people are, if I had to characterize it, I would say there's more people thinking of them as gigs rather than jobs, okay. rather than careers. It's something you're doing for a period of time. Yeah. And uh, I think that is characteristic of a lot of what's happening in society and a lot of the, you know, the structure of the work environment in general. I think it is doing. Now, having said that, though, there are still people and uh, who have a great deal of loyalty to the firm they have. And that seems to increase over time. Not surprising when you've been in a place a long time, you tend to be. So there's kind of a hump. If you can once get over that hump with people and they've really settled in, they're pretty, you know, they're pretty stable. Unless, you know, we mentioned COVID. The other thing that really impacts it is mergers. Right. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah you merge, say, Coca-Cola with Panda Pops, and they're very different cultures, aren't they? And, yes, yes, exactly. And it, it's uh, it's interesting. If the merger is one where a firm acquires another firm, the people in the firm that is doing the acquiring, they're perfectly happy. Yeah. They're, yeah, they're not threatened. They're not. But the firm that is acquired or the one with a merger of equals, you see a big spike in people actively looking and a real decrease in those that say they're not looking at all. Yeah. So you lose stability in your workforce. And I saw some research by the Gallup organization that came up with a book called Vital Friends. And they said one of the key factors in enjoying your role, apart from worthwhile work, is being around people that you like, that are friends for you. So with disruption, mm -hmm. with people moving on, that affects your state of mind, doesn't it, and how happy you exactly. are career-wise? Exactly. It, it does indeed. And, uh, you know, you can see it as you, you look in firms. If you have a good friend in there, they tend to help each other, look out for each other's yeah. guts got your back and uh, they're your informal, they're, they're a way of accumulating that career capital. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, that's part of your network. Mm. Now, when we look at talent, firms would say recruitment and retention of top talent is a key priority for us. They have all kinds of golden handshake, welcome packages, promising them the earth. But 
it's at the other end as well. You've got this term golden handcuffs that you've looked into. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, the, uh, the thing of it there is that, uh, you know, once you get in a situation where it's difficult to leave, either because uh, the, of the employment situation or something, you can get people who are resentful of where they are and they're resentful of what they're saying, but they're staying around because of a financial thing or because of a retirement or just because of that. Mm. And that really, what that does is just saps the productivity. It saps the engagement and involvement of it, which hurts the firm as a whole. Yeah. Corporate branding is different to personal branding. This personal branding side of it, building your own career capital, attracting people to you so you're employable. But the other side of it is this corporate branding. How do firms set themselves up as an employee of choice? You help firms with the corporate branding side of things. How do you begin to start that journey, Lee, and what kind of things do you talk about that? Well, the, uh, the first is understanding so you have policies that allow you to be a good place to work. Okay. If you have, you know, for example, the, uh, the working remotely, uh, having a policy where you are against working remotely uh, can be very detrimental and you don't necessarily realize that's hmm. what's going on. And the interesting thing is people will tell you, I mean, when we do branding work and we ask the internal people about the brand, they'll tell you you know, how satisfied they are and what they're dissatisfied and which policies and so forth. So it's not like it's not accessible or it's unknowable. Uh, it, it's right there for any competently performed survey or piece of research can uncover what those things are, but you have to have the will to change them. Yeah. The second thing you need to do is you need to be able to communicate that culture and that brand. And that often is where people fall down, just like as you need to differentiate your uh, client-facing brand, how you're different from other firms. You also have to differentiate your employer brand. Hmm. How are you different than other employers, other okay. accounting firms? Yeah. Uh, do you have policies that are consistent? And, you know, if you're hiring, uh, you know, you're focusing on hiring entry-level people, there's no excuse for not knowing what it is that they're looking for and, you know, what values are important to them. And there's no excuse for not knowing that here's the time of turnover. Here's when they're most likely to leave. So that is, that is there. You bring up an excellent point because your external brand will make one business client move from one accounting firm to another. But your employee brand will make one top talent person move from one firm to another because they perceive a gap, don't they? There's something better. There's something I haven't got. There's a need right. that's not being met. Yes, and, and it's either going to be uh, around their autonomy and their ability to build things or one of the benefits, whether it's salary or flexibility or working from home, it's going to be something like that that's, yeah. that's going to be consistent. And in professional firms, Lee, are there some that are so big and, and unwieldy, if you like, that they're a little bit blind to this internal employer branding? They think we've got such a strong external brand, people will just want to come and work for us. Well, to a certain extent, they are right that people, a strong external brand will attract people to work for you. Mm. Uh, what it won't do is keep them loyal. Right. Yeah. And uh, you'll be finding yourself, you will become a training academy for other firms. Yeah. So you've looked at different professional service sectors. There are many of them. We're talking about accountants here, but presumably attracting and retaining talent in different industries. Is it all pretty similar? Or are there any differences? 
Oh, there, there are actually some uh, pretty stark differences in terms okay. of uh, where they are in terms of the supply and demand. So, for example, one of the industries that's not accounting, but it, it kind of makes the point, is construction. Very high level of active looking in the construction industry. Okay. Because if you think about it, construction industry is sort of oriented that way about big projects that last a time, and then yeah. you may go to another place that lasts a time. Uh, similarly, branding and uh, marketing and communications is an area where there's quite a bit of turnover. Uh, in the professional services, quite a bit of active turnover in there. Uh, so you have those kinds of anomalies. And as I meant, we mentioned earlier, uh, accounting is really an anomaly. It has a very, very low rate of active looking people. So most of them are, they're either satisfied where they are or they're passively looking. So I'm interested in the term passively looking, because if I think of some accountants that I know, looking is hard because by showing the world that you are unhappy where you are, you're jeopardizing your current position. So Precisely. you've almost got to do it under the radar, haven't you? You wouldn't put on LinkedIn uh, actively looking for new opportunities. You've got to be very careful who you talk about that to, haven't you? Precisely. And so you know where they go? Where? Uh, those mid-career people who are passively looking? Go on. Trade shows. Oh, yeah, true. Associations, your yeah. your professional community, other people, that's where they go. Yeah. They can talk to their friends discreetly. Yeah. Or they wait for someone to contact them through LinkedIn. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and if you, without the face-to-face stuff and the trade shows with COVID and lockdown and everything else, uh, those those opportunities to talk to trusted friends are suppressed a little bit. They don't have those avenues. So there, there must be a few frustrated people out there. I, I, think, I, I think there are uh, some frustrated people. In, and you can see it actually, uh, I don't know if you caught in the news while LinkedIn laid off a uh, huge number, thousands and thousands of people in their, uh, in their corporate area who are focused on the passive job seeker market because a lot of that is just shut down as people have been, you know, overwhelmed with uh, just dealing with their personal family issues and so forth. Uh, I think a lot of things where people say, well, I'm just going to hold for the moment. Yeah. I'm just going to hold for the moment. Talk to us about time horizons, Lee, for job seekers. In terms of when they're looking at which points? Yeah. Well, this phrase "time horizons" came up in your research, doesn't it? So, what is a time horizon to start with? Well, uh, there's there's time horizons in terms of when it's most likely that someone is going to be looking for a, something okay. new. Yeah. It's kind of like where in your engagement with an organization are you most likely? Now, I've learned in you know in my own experience is that it takes six months before you really understand who a person is. Or what a job is you know it takes about six months then you sort of understand okay this is the organization i really joined <laughs> not yeah. the one i thought i was doing yeah it is it either is or it isn't what you bought into yes yes you know the first the first few weeks it's a honeymoon everything is wonderful <laughs> and lovely and then then it's like oh my gosh yeah. oh, everything is uh, there are all these things i didn't realize i should have asked <laughs> all the politics nobody told me about Yes, yes. And then it takes you a while to make the decision. So uh, that's usually where the uh, the one to two years is usually pretty safe for an employer point of view. But then after that, that's when people really start looking. 
Yeah. Uh, the other thing we see is that when there's a big transition, we mentioned the thing with uh, COVID, we mentioned the thing with mergers and acquisitions. Whenever there's a change in your work environment that's significant, that also seems to really uh, engender a bunch of people looking like, this place has changed, I liked it the way it was, I don't like it the way it's going. Yeah, that's a really important point because we are squarely in the middle of a a pandemic right now. People have been furloughed. They're working from home. They might not want to go back and and have that commute. Some might be desperate to get back to an office because they're struggling with the home situation. But mm-hmm. it's change. It's upheaval. It's disruption. It makes people think and reflect. Am I really going where I want to go in life? And all the mergers and acquisitions, the stuff you're talking about, accountants and professionals, they don't deal well with this kind of change. They want certainty, don't they? And that's the last thing they've got right now. Right, exactly. There, there's a reason they went into uh, accounting and not new product development. Hmm. So that affects employee brands, it, it, yeah. employee and employer brands. It must be hard for an uh, accounting firm to keep people low when they're having to fellow some. Others are given uh, reductions, you know, 10% lower wages so we can keep the cash flow going and everything else. So they're going to lose people. Yes, they're, they're going to lose people and there's going to be uh, – uh, I think there's going to be big changes in terms of the business model. Uh, you know, before uh, I, I would characterize accounting as being primarily a local profession in its orientation. Okay. People felt it, that if you want to be, uh, you know, if you want to have uh, business in a certain area, you need to open an office in that city and you need to have people in that city. And it's all eyeball to eyeball. That's the only way you get business. That's the only way you can deliver your services. Well, I, I think the the industry has demonstrated to itself that that's a bunch of baloney. Yeah. Uh, there are many different models and there are many different ways you deliver service. And, and really, uh, it's uh, quite possible, as we've shown, to do many things remotely that were previously done in the office. It's a really good point. And we're getting an explosion in outsourcing, offshoring, freelancing, these career portfolios. I'm going to do this project and then opt out. So we're going to have a disruptive labor market, aren't we? I think, I think we are. And, uh, you know, that creates, uh, depending on your view of things that creates tremendous opportunity, uh, as people rethink their entire business models and it disrupts industries. I mean, uh, can the real estate uh, industry or the restaurant industry or the hospitality industry, you know, is uh, absolutely getting disrupted. Mm. Is there anything employers can do to attract people that are not actively looking to move? Uh, yes, they can. And, uh, you know, interestingly enough, and, and this is one of the things I find very fascinating, is the things that attract passive job seekers are almost the very same things that attract clients. Okay. They're very interested in your website, the kinds of thought leadership you publish, what you specialize in, what industries you know. Mm-hmm. So you think about it, you're, you know, you're accountant midway in your career, uh, you've got a lot of experience working in a particular industry and a particular thing, but you only get to do that a little bit of time and your employer is uh, somewhat cross between Scrooge and Simon Legree. You know, you're going to uh, you're going to be ripe for a place to go and a new way of thinking about that. And what you're going to do is you're going to look online. You're going to uh, talk to your friends at trade shows or virtual or otherwise, and you're going to figure out 
who, where can I really advance my career? Yeah. Where can I do the kinds of work I want to do in the way I want to do it? Yeah. So in wrapping up, Lee, what advice would you give to accounting firm leaders? And it may be even the HR function in there, but they're responsible for talent recruitment and retention. What advice would you give to them to state the employers of choice and put talent at the top of the agenda right now? Uh, I, I think I would say it starts with understanding what is it that you want to be known for as an organization. What do you? What are the expertise points? What kinds of problems do you want to be able to solve? And once you understand that, then you have a much better understanding of what type of people you will need to be able to solve those kinds of problems, and what kind of clients have those kinds of problems. Yeah. And when you understand those two things, and if you align those, uh, uh, and you demonstrate your expertise through the things you write and talk about, and share in the digital world, that helps you attract both the right kind of people and the right kind of clients. And so keeping your consult, your culture one that is really focused on that kind of work, that kind of expertise will attract the very best people. And then give them the flexibility that they want and need to do their best work. Sure. And we hear stories here in the UK, Lee, I don't know if it's the same in the US, but the big four firms, for instance, they're, they're coming out of big offices with huge rents. They're not going to fill those up again. They're going to be laying off hundreds and thousands of people. Mm-hmm. So the job market is going to be flooded with quality people. But in order to pick the cream of that crop, that employee brand proposition needs to be strong, doesn't it? It does, it does indeed. And I, I think that uh, the employer, the employee, and the firm as a whole, those brands, they all need to be strong. They all need to be aligned. And uh, I, I think the uh, the movement towards recognizing the importance of brand, whether it's as an employer or as an individual, uh, I think we're just on the front edge of that. Yeah. It's going to become a, a bigger and bigger factor as we go to this more looser kind of structure. Sure. Well, I want to ask you one more thing in a moment, just to finish. From the employee branding side of things, what do they need to be doing to become more promotable and hireable? But just before I do that, the, the research that Hinge does, the stuff that you guys churn out, is phenomenally high quality. If people want to know more about what you're doing, get interested in this corporate employer branding stuff that you're doing, what's a good way for them to reach out, Lee? Uh, I would go just to hingemarketing.com, our website, and look in the library. You'll see a section of research reports, and uh, this one is right there. All, all our executive summaries are free in there, so there's no cost or obligation, and we don't cold call, so no one's going to be reaching out to you and pounding on your head to talk to you. Yeah, got that. Thank you very much. And even the executive summaries are, are super informative and very, very insightful. So, Lee, this has been terrific today. Just finish with, would you, with some words of advice or inspiration for the accountants themselves listening. They want to have that career capital. They want to be working for the best accounting firms. What would you say to them? Uh, I would say uh, number one is specialize. Uh, start with something that you can, that you love and that you can devote yourself to getting better and better at it. I think we are entering an age of specialists and we will see more and more of that as the geographic barriers come grow. So that's number one. Number two is make that visible to the world. Share it. Uh, whether it's through blog posts or speaking or uh, online or even just sharing things that you find helpful and inspirational. Uh, helpfulness pays. That's what people are looking for. 
people who are helpful and are have expertise that's useful. And read this book, I'm sure, because that's right in there. The other <laughs> thing I would add to that, Lee, is build your network because yeah. that personal board of advisors that can open doors and usher you into the corridors of power and into boardrooms, those champions, those advocates, you don't get anywhere on your own. So having people be in that gap for you, that's why they say it's not always what you know, it's who you know. That's part of it, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think it really is, Rob, and that's one of the things that our more recent research we're doing, one of the things we're finding the power of that, because it not only helps you with getting opportunities and so forth, it also helps you sharpen your skills, being with other experts, you know, the, uh, you're judged by who you know and who you hang out with. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's been more than a few movies about uh, someone uh, having the the attractive woman go out with them and all of a sudden they're more attractive. <laughs> yeah, just to finish, I say in my book, your network is who you know and your reputation is who knows you. And, mm -hmm. and each one builds the other one. And so, yeah, you've got to invest in yourself. Lee Fredrickson, this has been terrific today. Thank you so much for your time and your insights. And uh, I look forward to the next time we have you on the show, where I'm sure we're going to have another amazing topic to talk about. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Rob. Thank you very much. This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett.